Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Have you ever felt enslaved to old patterns in your life? Have you ever felt like you needed to connect more to the God that you so love and and serve and desire? Have you just wanted a a deeper hunger and a thirst for, for more of that spiritual life that you keep hearing about in the Gospels and in Paul and in Jesus? This may be a topic that you might want to consider. What is fasting? It's very simple, really. Fasting is the conscious practice of abstaining from food or other creature comforts for the purpose of prayer. It's abstaining from one thing in order to experience on a deeper level another thing for a time. It was a significant practice among the people of Israel became a regimented, scheduled practice with the Pharisees in Jesus' day and then went overboard in some later years and centuries after that. It was in reaction to the overboard nature of fasting that the modern-day church has all but left it by. In a reaction to abuses and overdone, mechanical, religious-type practices with fasting, The church today is all but left it by, and yet Jesus assumes in this passage that his disciples will do it, at least occasionally. There are a lot of misconceptions about fasting. I remember when I first started working at Reality, uh, some of the pastors got together on a retreat to pray for a number of things, and they instituted this kind of uh, mandatory group fast uh, going into that, you know, as, uh, as kind of a, a rookie and a beginner going into just working in full-time ministry and being told that I had to skip food, I was a little aggravated and irritated. I knew the Bible said fasting was good, I knew Jesus taught about it, but there was something about someone telling me to do it when I, I it wasn't time yet, you know, it wasn't like my, my, my time to do it. And truth be told, my time would probably never come to just skip a meal, But I began to uh, work through these thoughts, you know, and I was at that retreat, and I remember thinking certain things like, this doesn't even make sense. Like, we're here to pray. Like, don't you think I I would pray, you know, better if my stomach was full? Like, it seems like I'm just adding distractions when I I really just need a clear head, and, you know, it doesn't even even make sense. And once I got into it, and the fasting began to take uh, place, and I I began to feel it, and I started getting hunger pains, and I I began to think in a different way. Well, you know, Lord, Lord, you, you better start like pulling, pulling uh, just start answering some of my prayers because, you know, I'm hurting right now. So I, I don't know if you're seeing this. <laughs> you might not be hearing my words, but certainly see my body. I'm in racked with pain. I hope this is, you know, influencing you somehow. Just had this distorted view of, of fasting. No wonder I was so disgruntled with it. I completely lost sight of the power uh, and the joy that is encapsulated in such an ancient practice by Jesus, and there's a lot of misconceptions. Perhaps some of you have them 
uh, right now. Uh, you know, you're thinking in your mind, gosh, I was, I was about to eat just the biggest tri-tip sandwich for lunch, but this is making me feel guilty. There's no guilt involved in this sermon at all, uh, which perhaps is why Jesus starts here by addressing some of those misconceptions. He, he addresses at least one or two. By starting saying in verse 16, when you do fast, don't do it this way. Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they've received their reward. In other words, don't fast in order to impress other people, to be seen by others. This, I'm sure, could be stamped on anything that we do. Any spiritual practice, not just fasting, but praying, worshiping, giving, you know, the, the list is long, but the things that we do that are pious uh, and religious in order to impress other people. We are, in a sense, really just trying to get something from other people. It might not be something tangible, but you might fast or lift your hands in worship or uh, pray or do a number of things, give, uh, and there's a right reason to do all of those things. There's obviously wrong reasons in order to get something from someone. What might that be? Well, I might, you know, uh, be generous towards you in, in the flesh in order to get approval from you or recognition from others or to feel better about myself. It almost doesn't matter what form it takes. It's the, they're almost all in the area or realm of trying to get something from other people. And so Jesus is essentially saying, don't do religious things for your own glory or for your own self-interest. To fast in order to gain someone's approval is self-interest, it's self-glory. And so Jesus would say, you could do that, but if you do, you've already gotten your reward. People think very highly of you, they think you're very spiritual or religious, that's your reward. That's all you're gonna get. He goes on to say, instead, verse 17 through uh, 18, when you do fast, anoint your head, and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. This may come across very strange. And okay, before I pray, I got to anoint my head and wash my face. Um, this might seem out of the ordinary for some of us, but in the uh, ancient understanding, in that ancient culture, that was simply tantamount to being told, just comb your hair, wash your face, put on some makeup, you know, put on normal clothes, and live life normally. In other words, don't, don't do anything to yourself that would attract attention. Don't put on a gloomy face. I'm fasting. This is so hard, God. Just, you know, put on your makeup, comb your hair, pomade, whatever it is that you do. <laughs> put on your normal clothes and just have a normal life. Interact with people normally. Don't let on that you're doing this thing. Why? Jesus presents the truest way to fast. This is, this practice is between you and the Lord. It's not meant for other people. It's not meant to look a certain way before other people. It's between you and the Lord. But how many of us can attest to this, that even the things that we do between us and the Lord can similarly be manipulated and distorted? I can just as easy do something between me and the Lord in order to impress the Lord. I can easily do all of these things in order to get something from other people to get something from God. In fact, I have done that. I'm fasting because I think that God will, will be sympathetic towards me. 
If I'm hungry and if I'm, you know, in a sense depriving myself, God will take notice of me and he'll feel bad for me and he'll answer my prayers. How many of us have done that in a number of different ways? We consider fasting as maybe just a way to twist God's arm. Uh, And in that way, we're still doing the practice for our own glory and self-interest. Jesus would say the same thing. You've gotten your reward. You've gotten your reward. In this, he's telling us the deep, truest way to experience fasting, the way that he experienced, coming before the Lord so that no one can see what we're doing, but only God can see us. Now, you have to think, just pry a little bit deeper into the verses uh, before us and say, if we're not looking gloomy, if we're not necessarily sad, if we're not you know, wearing the, the sackcloth and ashes and going about town looking gloomy and complaining about ourselves, but we're actually okay and maybe even full of joy, what exactly is God seeing in us? When Jesus tells us that God will see us as we fast in secret, what is he seeing in the secret place? Well, he's looking at our heart. He's not looking at our body. He's not looking at our food or lack of food. He's not looking at our practice. He's looking at the condition of our heart as he has said so often in the scriptures. And you would have to ask, well, what does he desire to see in our heart? What is the condition of our heart through fasting that God would love to see? To that, I turn to Zechariah chapter seven, verse five, where we see the real heart behind fasting in the Bible. God, sa- uh, God says through the prophet Zechariah, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Was it for me that you fasted? Fasting is first and foremost an act of worship to the Lord. Fasting is an act of worship. It is not a means to manipulate God or other people. It is an act of worship done to God, even if, as Kim uh, so (laughs) uh, uh, put it in in that uh, testimony, sometimes we don't get the answer that we were expecting. Even so, it is still an act of worship to the Lord, even when you don't feel anything, even if something doesn't seem to happen significantly or tangibly, it is first and foremost done to the Lord. The hypocrites, as Jesus labels them, fast for self-glory and self-interest. The disciple of Jesus fasts for God's glory. So in this posture and practice, the self, here's what worship looks like, is the self is brought low and God is exalted. It's always an act of worship. Self is brought low, God is exalted. That's why whenever you see a prophet fasting in the Old Testament, they, they put those two things together. Isaiah 58, five, is such the fast that I choose, God says, a day for a person to humble himself? It's a rhetorical question, right? Fasting is to humble the self, exalt the Lord. Psalm 69.10, David said, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, humbled the soul, with fasting. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, the prophet says, Then I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God. And so you see the two fitting together. And this fits within the larger picture of following Christ, right? The old life, the culture that we live in, Santa Barbara, the world, our culture, our old life was one of self interest. In order to get ahead, in order to truly be happy, I need to watch out for my own interests. It's 
you know, pat myself on the back, watch out for my own cares, all of those things. The life of the disciple is one that is incredibly counterintuitive to that. If our old life was one of self-interest, the life of the disciple is one of self-denial. And didn't Jesus call us to that? Said in Matthew chapter 16, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I love that line. See, he's not just calling us to lose everything. He's calling us to gain something greater. He goes on to say, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you see the connection Jesus is making between the life and value of the soul and the denial of the sinful nature, the self? Humbling self to gain God. And the world will constantly say, indulge your every appetite and every craving that you have and you will be fulfilled. That is how you are happy. That is how you get the good life. But of the true good life, Jesus says, hey, deny anything that keeps you from surrendering to me. You might say, why on earth would I ever want to deny myself of what makes me happy? It's a legitimate question. Why would I want to deny myself ever? Why would I want to do anything but satisfy every single whim and desire that comes my way? especially if it brings me pleasure and satisfaction. The answer, I think, is in that last line. End of verse 18. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Oh, yeah, I hope he rewards me with a cheeseburger. (laughs) That word reward is very similar. It's not a cheeseburger, (laughs) The, the word reward in Matthew is very similar to the word blessed. We hit that word a lot, right, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. Blessed, reward, they both have a similar meaning. It, it speaks of, to be blessed in this sense, speaks of when God's good reign begins to creep into your present experience. It's when God's heaven starts to bear on the present. It's when God's rule and reign, his heaven, his kingdom, begins to come to bear in the present life and experience. It's when you get a taste of the future kingdom here in the present life. That is blessed. That is the reward. And in Jesus' counterintuitive view of life and reality, self-denial is a part of that. It's a way to a deeper richer spiritual life. It's what that old Puritan Henry Skugel uh, called the life of God in the soul of man. How to do it? Humbling the self, gaining God. Humbling the self, denying self in order to gain God. And we don't need to look too much further than Jesus Christ's own life to see him participating in this very thing, experiencing inner strength and power through the denial of self, specifically through fasting. We see Jesus doing this himself. In fact, one of the most famous passages of Jesus' fasting is in Matthew chapter four, verse one through four, where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. 
these aren't like uncomfortable, minor hunger pains, you know, from a partial fast, skipping lunch and dinner. This is like a month and a half or some, something of that nature. Uh, uh, going without food for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. See what's happening here? Jesus going into a period of seeking the Lord, depriving himself of food for 40 days and 40 nights was visibly weak with hunger, physically weak with hunger. The devil comes in and attempts to take advantage of that by uh, tempting him to turn stones into bread, which the Son of God easily could do. Jesus is so able to stand in strength by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though that is the very weakness that he's being tempted with in order to say what? Here is where my true power comes from. My true power does not come from bread, physical bread, but by the bread of every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was sustained by the word of God. He was sustained by the life of God. And if you look at the life of Jesus through Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke and John, you will see, uh, see that he is a master at living that deeper life. He didn't dabble. He was a master of this. He lived in close, intimate, powerful communion with his father. You might say, well, yeah, he's a son of God. He lived a divine life. He's so much different than we are. Yes, he, was, he is and was a son of God. He is God in human flesh. But that, uh, uh, you can't let it escape you what Paul said in the letter he wrote to the Philippians, that even though he was God and is God, he did not consider himself uh, 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 to... Uh, Excuse me, he did not, as he was living in this sphere with people, he chose of his own nature to put aside the privileges of the divine in order to live as a bondservant. You can't let that escape you. That even though, as he even said, I could call down legions of angels when I'm on the cross or when I'm in a place of temptation or I could call upon this or I can uh, siphon the power that is within me. He chose to live as a spirit-filled man. He could have pulled out all the tricks of heaven that he wanted, all the divine power that was his to use. He chose to live his life here as a human being fueled by the Holy Spirit. This gives us tremendous comfort and confidence to look at him and say, I can do that too. I can do that too. Jesus was a master at living the deeper life when he faced opposition, like in this instance. His flesh was weak, but his spirit was strong. And it was there that the love of the Father seemed to sustain him in some of the biggest trials of his life. Jesus was a master at it, but he was a master at it because he practiced it. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It doesn't mean he was a sinner and he made mistakes and he learned. It means that he learned through his life. He, he began to practice certain things. 
The book of Hebrews tells us that he learned through suffering what obedience meant. Doesn't mean that he ever sinned, it means that he practiced obedience to the Father and in times of suffering learned the most. He was a master at the deeper life because he practiced it. He had been feasting on the word of God for a month before Satan showed up. Of course he was ready. How many times do I begin to open up my Bible in that crisis only to put it away when things are going well? Jesus constantly lived in the presence of his Father communing. We can be and live like Jesus. Everything that you see about the life of Jesus, everything you see about him and for him, you can live that way, Christian. You can live that way now. But it will take the same intention and purpose and discipline that Jesus also had, which you can have by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Do you ever feel defeated, deflated? Do you ever feel like you keep falling into old patterns? Like you want to do the right thing, but you can't? Like you're just kind of mouthing lip service to the Lord. Yeah, I want to follow you, but every day it's just a battle. <clears throat> Perhaps some of you have even taken that so far as to feel guilty, shamed, or even questioning whether you really love Jesus. And for those of you that have put your faith in the Son of God, I want to comfort you in this. That the Bible promises that you are saved by grace and not by your works. It's not by how hard you try or how good you do. It is by God's initiative towards you. And so when you make mistakes, when you fall into old patterns, it's not because your heart is ill, necessarily. It's not because your heart hasn't been changed. In fact, the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, tell us that when we're born again, what happens is that the law of God is grafted into, implanted, imprinted upon our hearts so that we're not just trying to do something that we hate. We're now trying to do something that we love. We've been born again to the things of God. And so your heart has been born again. The problem is your body is still ingrained with bad old habits. It's the whole person. You're not just a heart. You're not just a spirit. You're a soul. You're a mind. You're a body. You have emotions. You have feelings. There's a lot to you. God made you that way. And the heart has been set free, but your body, and when I speak about body, I want to be very clear. I'm not just like knuckles, elbows, uh, you know, skin. When I speak about body or flesh from the biblical perspective, it's, it's our actions, it's our behaviors, it's our habits, it's our choices, our decisions, those types of things. Our heart has been born again, but as I often uh, have said, our, our body has not yet gotten the memo. And so the life of the believer is to get all of you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Every part of the disciple pointed towards Jesus Christ. You may want to do the right thing, but you might notice something is fighting deeply within you. Isn't this what Paul was saying? Paul, of all people, <laughs> so close to the Lord, would say it in Romans chapter 7, now, it is no longer I who do this particular action, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I, my heart, my spirit, have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, 
I do the evil that I do not want. That's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. How many of us can resonate with that? I want to follow God, but sometimes I can't. Sometimes I just get throttled by just things within me. I don't know where they're coming from. They're coming from your flesh. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is pressing his disciples to get ready for the trial that is coming, he's going to be crucified and they're going to be scattered. He does not question their heart. He doesn't question whether they love him. He appeals to their disciplined practice of prayer before the crisis starts to develop. What's he say? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So train your flesh to get on board with your heart. No one rolls out of bed as a mature disciple. You might roll into an Easter service and get zapped by the Holy Spirit and your heart gets changed, but you don't roll out of bed on Monday morning looking exactly like Christ in all of his deeds and functions and words, thoughts and actions and intentions and desires. We don't just roll out of bed. As a mature disciple, uh, Paul said to his uh, protege, Timothy, we have to train ourselves for godliness, He gives us a new heart instantaneously, but we must train ourselves, the rest of us, to align ourselves with that. Could you imagine? Let's just imagine you're a personal trainer. A client comes into your gym and says, hey, you know what? I really want to get ripped. I want to gain 20 pounds of sheer lean muscle, but uh, I don't really want to do anything. I'm hoping you could just pray for me, and I will just wake up next week super ripped. Wouldn't you laugh at that person? You're already laughing at the person. You'd be like, bro, do you even lift? (laughs) You got to train for this stuff, man. You know what Paul said to Timothy? He said, while bodily training is of some value. In other words, go to the gym. It's good. Godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You've got to train. This is really what the spiritual disciplines are. Fasting is one of those. We've been talking about a lot of those in this series. That's really all that they are is training. Practice is derived from looking at the life of Jesus, the apostles, the prophets that are effective for training ourselves for godliness. It's that intentional practice, as one person called it, within one's control, engaged in order to prepare for a moment that is not in that person's control. It's training now with what I can do so that when a crisis hits and I'm not in control of that crisis, I will be ready for it. As disciples, or in Hebrew, taladim, those Uh, men and even women in the first century who looked at a rabbi and were so uh, enraptured and captured by the person that they saw that they wanted to do anything that they could to look and be like that rabbi. There were some crazy stories in the first century of uh, disciples, taladim, who were so obsessed with their rabbi that uh, one rabbi in particular had a a function of his back where he had a, a little crook in his back and he walked everywhere like this and his disciples would 
follow him with the crook in their back, mimicking everything that he did. If a rabbi ate with their left hand, their disciples, who may have been right-handed, would eat with their left hand. Silly things on the outside, it may seem to you, but they were so obsessed. They were so, uh, uh, they were so enraptured and captured by the person of, in front of them that their greatest desire was to look and be conformed to the image of the person that they desired to follow. It wasn't simply listening to their teachings and you know, saying things to them on Sunday. It was, I want everything about me to be just like you. You are that worthy and valuable and wonderful. As Taladim of Jesus, the greatest rabbi in all of history. Not only a rabbi, but the son of God and a king. We're looking at everything that he did, the way he lived in order to be like him, and fasting was something he did, He also assumed that his disciples would do it too. I just want to spend a couple minutes telling you because now you're like, okay, Jesus is telling me I need to do this awful thing and I don't know why I'm going to do it. Well, I want to tell you why. Besides that Jesus does it himself and tells us, here's how it's going to affect you. This is really what you want to know, right? When you fast, two related things are gonna happen in your life if you do it in the way of Jesus. One, fasting will begin to weaken the power of the flesh in your life, your sinful nature. Your sinful habits, that old nature is gonna start to weaken. You're gonna emaciate it because you're denying your flesh the right to call the shots in little ways. You're just practicing that. We see this over and over in the New Testament. Galatians 5, Paul tells us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 6, let not sin, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey. There's a fight going on inside you. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, abstain from lusts that war against your soul. Romans 8, 13, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You see this language, there's a battle in you and you've given everything that you need to win that battle but we're called to engage. And fasting, you know, if you've ever tried like to do any of those things, abstain from lust, don't let sin reign, crucify the flesh, put to death the, the deeds of the flesh. You ever try to just not sin? Like you ever had, whatever, an addiction or an anger problem or pride and just decide, I'm just gonna not do this anymore. How'd that go for you? <laughs> it's hard, right? You don't just wake up and stop. You don't just wake up it's not automatic. It takes intention, a deep heart, and a vision for the things of God to follow after him. And fasting is simply, it's just one practice. But it is a particularly aggressive practice. You may say, well, can I fast, you know, from anything? Oh, it just came out of a season where the, a lot of people in the church practice what's called Lent, you know, and... Uh, leading up to the resurrection, where people fast from a variety of different things. You know, I'm gonna social media fast, I'm gonna fast from chocolates. Uh, you're dating someone, they're getting on your nerves, you're like, I'm gonna fast from you for 40 days. Like, <laughs> there's so many things people fast from in Lent. You might be asking, do I have to fast from food? You don't have to. But here's what would happen if you fasted from food. That might not happen by fasting from Facebook. Food is one of our deepest felt needs, right? We need it. It's up there with air and water and sleep. 
What separates it from air and water is that in addition to being one of our deepest felt needs, it's also one of our deepest felt wants. We don't just need it, we want it. There are times where we, you know, we obviously need to eat in order to live, but there are other times where we, we use food as an idol or a comfort, just like so many other things in our life. The difference between that and other comforts is that it has a huge stronghold. Fasting from food is so powerful and pervasive that to do it, you'll start to notice, if you do it right, it will begin to affect not just food and your physical hunger, but almost everything else. You'll start to notice it affecting your pride, your love of, for example, social media, the way that you treat other people in relationships. It affects everything because it's such a deep part of who you are. It's an aggressive particular spiritual practice. Richard Foster, the Quaker who uh, wrote about fasting so often, wrote that more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. You might start by abstaining from food, but you will quickly find other things that are controlling you that you didn't know before. Fasting is an opportunity to lay down a physical appetite in order to bring us face-to-face with a deeper hunger at the core of our being. Start to notice deeper things about you. It brings our creature comforts, as one person put it, to the surface and exposes how truly weak they are to fill the capacity of our souls. It exposes things in our lives. But it doesn't just strip us of the power of our flesh. It also puts us in a position to receive more from the Lord. It's not just a stripping, it's a receiving And this is the second thing it does. Fasting doesn't just weaken the flesh, it strengthens the spirit in you. By putting your spirit in the driver's seat, you're denying your flesh its right to call the shots, you're putting the spirit in the driver's seat. In Joel chapter 2, 12, it says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting. It is a way to return, to face Jesus, to face the Lord. In fact, Daniel said, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayers and fasting. Fasting is not just turning away from the flesh, it's a powerful turn of the whole person towards God in order to be satisfied with something far deeper than creature comforts can satisfy. I think that's why Paul said in Galatians, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or in other words, if you starve the flesh, feed the Spirit. I hope you understand. Again, I'm not saying starve yourself. (laughs) Never eat again. Starve the sinful nature of its sinful desires in order to feed the Spirit. There was a time when Jesus was fasting and the disciples were urging him in John chapter four. Rabbi, you need to eat, you need to eat, you need to eat. And he said to them, I have food that you don't even know about. They looked around to one another and said, has anyone brought him something? Did someone go to the store? I didn't see it. It was very interesting. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work sustained to summarize all of that fasting is this it is a spiritual practice in which we deprive ourselves from food for a time 
in order to feed our spirit on the things of God. And that training is what allows us to say, even with people like John the Baptist, without a modicum of doubt, he must increase and I must decrease. That is the way of Jesus, that he might increase in our lives and we might decrease in our flesh. Fasting is just one of the ways, a very powerful and aggressive way of experiencing that. And the fruit of fasting, as we've already seen, is uh, greater intimacy with the Father. We've seen that, Matthew 4, John 4, with Jesus and the Father. It's uh, a greater power over sin in your life, freedom from sin. We saw that in some of the verses I shared with Paul. But it's also, you're going to notice, a greater yielding and receptivity to the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says, While the apostles were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit spoke to them, and they heard him in a clear way because they were fasting. How does that work? Same type of thing. Have you ever tried to hear from the Lord, and you, you ever ask yourself, like, I don't know if this is God speaking or me speaking. <laughs> I don't know if this is the Lord or my own thoughts or my own flesh. What is fasting supposed to do? It's supposed to train our flesh to be put down so that we don't hear it all the time, so that we, we, we push it down. We're not always uh, uh, oppressed by our flesh so that we can have greater clarity from the Spirit. As you get into the practice of fasting, you will start to notice, I think, a greater clarity in the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. That also affects the decisions that you make in life, big decisions, Acts chapter 14, 23, when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I cannot imagine any of us making some of the decisions that I have heard us make and are faced with making without coming to the Lord with a somber, serious, and even reflective position with fasting and prayer. Some of the things that we face with our children what we're we going to do with them, our children who have gone astray, do you pray and fast for them? Some of you are faced with moving or making huge career decisions, making huge life decisions, decisions that are going to affect your community, your church, your family, your spouse, your kids, huge things that you're faced with all the time. Just consider one of those, just to give it a flesh and, uh, flesh and blood, uh, flesh and bone. Uh, I, I love being here. I have a community. I'm surrounded by people that pour into me and I into them, and I know I'm supposed to be here, but I just got faced with this job opportunity in uh, Tallahassee where I'm going to be making more money and it's going to be uh, uh, maybe a better life. And I don't know, is God calling me to that? Because if, if he's calling me to that, you know, I want to I obey him even though it's a hard thing to do. But I don't know if it's my flesh. Is it my flesh just wanting a, you know, an easier, maybe a little less rent and a little more money? I don't know. Is it the Lord or is it my flesh? Do you fast about those things? Do you take those decisions so seriously that you're willing to put down the flesh in order to hear from the Holy Spirit? Your kids who are, have gone astray and don't follow the Lord anymore, do you fast and pray before God? Do you take it with that much seriousness? Uh, your flesh is overwhelming you. You're caught up in addictions uh, and all sorts of different uh, issues of the heart that, that you cannot control. Do you, are you so broken inside that you are willing to uh, uh, fast and pray in order to receive from the Lord? 
Do you fast for the city of Santa Barbara? Does it break your heart enough that for at least a moment it might break your, your meals, your meal schedule? And of course, fasting will help us to experience a greater degree of that new life in Christ. Romans 8, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. That's not our life anymore. You're not enslaved to that anymore, or at least you don't have to be. We are debtors to live according, uh, not to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, to put the, to death the deeds of the body, you will experience life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. After I got over my initial irritation with people telling me I needed to skip a meal or two, uh, I started to grow, just, you know, started to be like, okay, I see it in your word. Lord, help me to receive from this. I want to I wanna see what this is all about. I actually hate it. You know, I don't, <laughs> there's nothing in me that wants to do this, Lord, but your word says it, and I believe you. Help my unbelief. What am I missing? What am I missing? I'm going to just try this. Tried it before, it was awful, I'm gonna try it now. Give me the right heart. Thank you that I'm, you know, I'm not sustained by creature comforts, I am sustained by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And I began to fast and I started off small, you know, just a couple meals. And I noticed first off, you know, when I started, I just prepared my heart for it instead of going into it like, people making me fast. said, Lord, I want to do this. I want to try it. I believe you. Help me. As I began to fast, I, uh, that one particular moment, I, I began to notice a few things. had a journal, started writing some of this stuff down so I could document it, and started to notice, you know, those minute hunger pains start to creep up. First thing that creeped up with those hunger pains was anger. Not anger at food an irritable side to me that came out towards my wife and even my kids. When things didn't go my way, I'd, I'd just start to get irritated. And it was almost like the lack of food was exacerbating that. And I wrote that down. I was like, this is interesting. And as I began to write down all the times that that anger began to creep up, I started noticing a pattern. And I wrote this down in my journal. I wrote down, anytime I don't get my way, I get really irritated, and fasting is exposing that in my life. So I threw that at the foot of the cross, and I said, Lord, you did it. You exposed an area in my life, now I want you to get rid of it. I want more of you. Thank you, Lord, that I don't need, I don't need, a, you know, I don't need this corn dog to make me satisfied right now. I need your life-giving presence and word in my life. And I didn't just notice anger begin to come up into my life, but as I began to submit further to the will of God, I started to notice that anger begin to weaken and dissipate. Not just that day, but indefinitely. And I began to notice this peace begin to rule in my heart. And by the second day, I was able to exercise more patience towards my daughter, who at the moment was teething and just a ruckus of a human at the moment, you know? In moments that I would have easily lost my cool at a different part of, you know, on a different week, in that moment, I, I, I experienced more love towards her and more joy in my life and more peace 
through fasting, I was, I was training my body to submit to the Lord, and it was working. I want to leave you with just a couple easy steps if this is something that you, you want to try on your own. We, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, have been trying to take Jesus' words seriously in this series with, uh, by saying, you know, everything that he says throughout this series, let's just try it. Let's just try it. You know, the obvious caveat is if you have some health issues that prohibit you from skipping meals or like that, obviously that's an exception. Talk to your doctor, anything that you need to do. But for those of us that can, um, maybe let's try it. The Lord puts it on your heart. So today we're going to have a five-hour long service and we're going to skip lunch. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Some of you are like, okay, I'm leaving. (laughs) I just want to throw out a couple practical tips, okay? And then we'll end. Uh, As one person said it, before you run a marathon, you should probably just run down the block. (laughs) So don't fast for seven days. Just do a partial fast, which is generally, you know, from lunch to lunch. Um, So, you know, eat dinner one night. Eat a really good dinner, big dinner. Go to sleep, wake up, and you would go through breakfast and lunch. Super, super minimal. And not that, not that hard. And then you would break that fast with dinner. A big, no, <laughs> small dinner. <clears throat> uh, you know, you could drink fresh fruit juices. Those are great to, to drink during that time. Obviously, drink a lot of water. Do not tell anybody that I told you to fast from water. That is not what I said. Do not fast from water. Drink lots of water. This is fasting from meals. Uh, and if this is something that catches on, try to attempt to do it you know, every week or every couple of weeks and see what that does to your, to your soul. Keep a journal if you want. Write down some of the things that you're feeling. And perhaps start that fast that night or that morning with a prayer like Jesus prayed. Thank you, Lord, that I do not live by bread alone, but I, I live by your word. And I pray that you would sustain me now. Richard Foster Again, quoting him, wrote an excellent excerpt on this, on the experience of fasting. He said, in the beginning, you will be fascinated with the physical aspects of your experience. But the most important thing to monitor is the inner attitude of your heart. Outwardly, you will be performing the regular duties of your day, but inwardly, you will be in prayer and adoration, song, and worship. In a new way, cause every task of the day to be a sacred ministry to the Lord. However mundane your duties, for you, they are a sacrament. Cultivate a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Break your fast with a light meal of fresh fruits and vegetables and a good deal of inner rejoicing. I want to stop right there, just try to do justice and explain what Jesus has left before us. But the truth of the matter is, this might still be foreign to all of you. You might be just laughing to yourself like that. I can't believe I came on this Sunday. (laughs) Fasting will never make sense unless you have been captivated and fed off of the glory of the risen God, off of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to a group of people once, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I'm going to invite the worship team up this morning. And let's just spend this time before us not fasting, but feasting feasting off the presence of our living God.
and finding in this place what it means to be sustained by our risen Lord. The Holy Spirit will do that to you and with you if you accept it and receive from it and are willing. Just open yourself up to God and say, I want all that you have for me this day. Teach me what it means. Teach me what it means to feast on you. And let's start right there. Heavenly Father, come and have your way and teach us, Lord, where our souls are emaciated and hungry for something deeper. Perhaps we're trying to stuff it with other physical things, emotional things, even spiritual things, religious things. I'm gonna pray, God, that you would begin to show us what it really means like to be filled, to be filled to overflowing. Thank you that you are the one, you are the great shepherd who leads us, who guides us, who makes us lie down, and who, as the psalmist declares, causes our cups to run over. We pray that in this place as we sing, we'd be able to come to you with empty cups and you would fill us to overflowing by your healing presence in Jesus' name, amen.